You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. Welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. I am Rev Yearwood, President and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus. And I am Anthony Smith, Grammy-nominated singer, actress, and activist, a.k.a. your favorite artist. And I am Mustafa Santiago Ali, Senior Vice President of the Hip Hop Caucus. Welcome to our radio show and podcast that delivers real talk on climate change and environmental justice. No sides, just the facts and stronger communities. Man, that that is right. So thank you uh, to WPFW for hosting us here in the studio. And a big thank you to all of our listeners who tune in each week. And I support, but I got to say this real quick, because mm-hmm. uh, we love you all, but I got to say this, one of our our uh, our director of communications, hope he's listening, Mark, man, we love you. He's out today. He just had <laughs> a little baby boy. All right. You know Congrats, I mean? Mark. Congratulations, number Mark. Two. Number two. This is number yes. two. Coop is uh, is here and, and our engineer, Sierra. So, man, I know we, she's also, man, we just, so... I tell you this, while we're dealing with climate change, y'all got time for something. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of love in in the air. A lot of love. A lot of love in the movement here. Hey, love is everything. Love everywhere else. Oh man, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm Mustafa. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I've I know I've taken us off a path here. That's all right. But tell tell them where they can check us out at. That's right, everybody. To follow all of our previous shows and the show that you're going to hear tonight, go to our blog at think100.info and also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at think100show. Yes, and you know, we have an incredible we have an incredible show today and we have two incredible champions for democracy, justice and our health on the show today. And they are going to share how our collective power made real change in the midterm elections and how our first responders mm-hmm. are under attack from toxic pollution. So before we kind of dive into these interviews, let's get started with our co-host. And I know, Antonique, you are on <laughs> the West Coast. Uh, I am. In LA. In so you Cali, can let us yeah. know what is happening in our movement and how is everything in California? Oh, man, y'all. Things out here are crazy because many of the parts of the state are burning. It's still burning. Mm. And, you know, we, we have to wonder if the president really gets how climate change is creating a deadly situation. Mm. He clearly doesn't get it. Mm. The, the 2018 fire season in California has been incredibly deadly this year, and more California acres have burned in 2018 than in the past decade, no. guys. No, no, no. That's you crazy, right? Decade. You're saying the past, de- the past decade. Mm-hmm. Yes, more this year than in the past decade. Wow. He still don't get it. It's and he still don't get it. In fact, he's just talking crazy and, and not even making any sense when he's referring to these fires. He came out here and it was just this weird trip. And, you know, 
it's it, 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 I'm, I'm going to try to give you a little bit more information about what we know. 80 plus people, you guys, have lost their lives. 80 plus people. Mm-hmm. And, and the number is growing every day. There's, there's a thousand people that are unaccounted for. And we're praying that these people are found alive somehow. I mean, can you imagine if that number is people that we've lost also? A thousand people unaccounted for. 11,000 homes have been destroyed. 150,000 acres mm. has been burned. 150,000 acres. I, I can't even really calculate mentally how much land that is. Like, I, I can't even visualize how much the land that is. That's crazy. And get this. The fires are only 50% contained. Wow. Okay? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I mean, They're that's... Assert- that's crazy. Yeah. That's like that means we still have fifty percent more to go, and and this is where we are already with losing eighty people and a thousand people unaccounted for, and we still have fifty percent of the fire left to fight. Thirty seven hundred inmates are among the estimated nine thousand firefighters that are currently tackling various blazes throughout the state. The inmates are paid a dollar an hour, you guys, to fight the most deadly fires in California history. A dollar an hour. Wow, that's bananas. It's crazy. Man, I, I, then, I, I don't know, you know how that's even. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's, it's definitely like, not a living almost, wage. Right, no, it's not a living wage. No, not at all. And once these prisoners are released, once these released prisoner firefighters. Once they're released, they're not eligible to join the civilian firefighter's department. That's the next so question can... for you, Anthony. I was, I, right, so... I was, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> so hopefully they can at least join the fire department so they're not even eligible because Oh, of... no. Nope. Wow. Mm-hmm. Not even eligible because they've been to prison. I find that extremely unfair. If they're able to fight it now, you know, why can't they have an actual job when they get out of prison? I don't think that's right, especially if they've served their time and and they're doing the right thing now. I, you know, that just seems completely unfair to me. Um, this year, California legislators debated a bill that would have directed local agencies to, in some cases, not let criminal history be a reason to deny certification. Instead, legislators scaled it down, deciding instead to pass a bill that would collect data on people's being denied. Wow. That's California, most progressive state. That's California, state. you know. It's very surprising. I know, the most progressive state. So if, we're, if, if that's happening out here, then you know the rest of the country's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, state officials, such as Governor Brown, have cited climate change as a factor in the increasing severity of California's fire season. Donald Trump's administration has been reluctant to discuss climate change, but Trump's Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke acknowledged on a trip this week to Paradise, which is where the fires are up north, that climate conditions are worsening. This is a quote from him. He said, the fire season has gotten longer and the temperatures have gotten hotter. And he also said the state and federal officials have to work more closely together to thin out overgrown forested areas. His statement was in alignment with President Trump, who feels that this is a forest management issue. <laughs> and it is now crystal clear that being a climate denier is, is dangerous. It's 
dangerous for our country and for our communities. It's dangerous. It's deadly. We cannot have climate deniers making policy and running the country. It's, I mean, people are dying. I agree. And I just say this, Anthony, just on that, man. I, I, and I'm so glad because we have some amazing guests that are coming up. And yes. this is the reasons why elections are so important. But I'm just asking Mustafa, I, it, I thought, is Ryan Zinke still an interior secretary? Is he still still around? I mean, I know he was kind of like, I know he was kind of. I mean, everybody else gone. I, I know he was. I, I know it was. I mean, I, but you know what? You never know from you one day what? to another. Okay, <laughs> we, we booted through it. That's what I was. I mean, I know. Right. I know you're trying to wheel Wheeler, and right. I and I. I mean, and he's gonna get slinky with Zinke. That's oh, okay, okay. There, there, there. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's so, a good one. Yeah, nah. I mean, he he has so many various ethical. Oh, Oh my God! Proprieties, uh, the policies that he's been moving forward on are just devastating, both to the natural environment and to people's health. And unbelievable, uh, you know, there there is a new Congress that will be in place here shortly. Yay! And, and they will do their job, or or we'll help them to find another job, just like. Come that. on now! Right. Hey. All right! All right! All right! <laughs> All righty. Right. I got to tap my little mug here. I'm going to drink a little water on that one. Let me get a little, little yeah, toast to that one. So, so, so listen, let's get right. Let's get right to it. Because we had a, on that note, we had, we had an, an amazing election. So, you know, so let's get right into what we have today. You know, we have two amazing guests joining us today. My, my, my dear good friend, Jen Karpinski. He's with us in the studio, uh, and Diane Carter, who will join us by phone in the second half of the show. So, without a dot, Gene, my man, welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. It's great to be here, Rev. Really good. Hey, Gene. Hi, Anthony. How you doing? Keep fighting. I'm out good. There in California. Thank you. Will do. You know, I can't stop. Man, Gene, it is great to have you on the show. I know the League of Conservation Voters has been incredibly busy over the last few months, and it's that hard work that has certainly paid off. So can you kind of share for folks who don't know what is the League of Conservation Voters and what they do? Sure. And thanks for being on. It's great to be here. Good to see you all. And thanks for all the great work that all of you do. So the League of Conservation Voters has been around for now for almost 50 years. Nonprofit environmental group. And we do we work with all the other environmental groups, whether it's Greenpeace or NRDC, all kinds of groups in between. A couple of things that we do that are special. One is we have this great board. The woman who chairs our board is a woman named Carol Brown, who used to run the EPA for eight years, the longest serving head of the EPA. And then there's this guy named Reverend Yearwood, who's also on our board yes, and brings a powerful voice to the board at every meeting. So we have a great board. It's like 30 people from around the country are part of that board. We also have 30 state LCVs in 30 states across the country. And what we do is we do policy, we do politics, we do organizing and we do accountability. You know, we keep score. We have a scorecard. We've been doing it for 50 years that rates every member of Congress on their on their environmental score from a zero like Mitch McConnell to 100 like Nancy Pelosi and a lot of people in between. Each of our states has a scorecard as well. We also do more than any other environmental group. We do elections. Well, hold on. G. He, he, he's brought out Mitch McConnell. I got to say this. So. <laughs> Cause he said, a, a, did I say McConnell had a zero? Hall? Oh, how could that be? Zero. Uh, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta work hard to get a zero. I mean, come on, right? Zero. Where's TC? I do. We got TC homie in the studio. TC, he got a zero. So, who, I mean, is he the only one who got got his? I mean, how many of them get zeros? We gotta get the zeros and what I mean, the zeros out. How, which, what is that with the? So, give us some more background on that, what that scorecard is and how you actually get to those 
numbers. Sure. So we do it every year, every Congress, and we have a scorecard advisory committee, which is actually comprised of a lot of other environmental groups. We sit around the nice table, whether it's the Sierra Club, NRDC, uh, some of our colleagues in different groups, the Nature Conservancy and others. We say, let's look at all the votes that the Congress took, the House and the Senate. Let's pick the ones that are most important environmental votes and let's score them. Last year, there are over 30 votes in the House and only about a dozen votes in the Senate because there weren't as many votes to happen there. Uh, and we just, you know, we look at the votes, we see how they voted, and we give them a score. So everyone, every single member of Congress has a score for that year and a lifetime score. Uh, and we have some real champions and we have a lot of people who are just horrible, frankly. And we give a lot, we gave way more zeros out in the last couple of years. This has been the most anti, we got the most anti-environmental president we've ever had in the White House, for sure. We all agree with that. It's also been the most anti-environmental Congress that I've ever seen. I've been doing this wow. for 40 years. The worst ever, the lowest scores ever, the most zeros that we've ever seen, which just tells a bad story about what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Well, wow. Gene, Gene, let's break this down. You know, let, let's talk about this election that we just went through, the midterm election. What does it mean for climate and the environment, but also... We know there are now these pro-environment folks who are now be making their way up to Capitol Hill. So let's let's start with the House and, and talk about this election. That's great. You know, we made our biggest investment overall in elections by far, over $80 million in independent expenditures and then raising money for candidates. And we, for the first time ever, made our biggest investment ever in the House. Mm -hmm. uh, we spent over $17.5 million focused on 26 House races across the country, a great set of candidates, climate champions trying to beat climate deniers. And 22 out of those 26 got beat. Antique, you're down there in, in Southern California. So Dana Rohrbacher <laughs> was one of the worst climate deniers. Oh we literally had a TV ad that shows him saying climate change is a fraud, is a scam. Mm. And he got beat by a, a new climate champion. And across the country, more people from the House who are running for the House ran on climate change. They talked about it. They connected with voters. And so we picked 26 races, 22 of them run. You have a brand, wow. brand new Congress in with a lot more climate champions. That's what we need. We need more people who, who wake up every day trying to solve this problem. So the House looks a lot more like America mm -hmm. than it ever did. And we know for all kinds of reasons, it's a year of the woman. Uh, much more diverse caucus in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic. But a lot more people came in campaigning on climate and are now here to become climate champions. Mm -hmm. That is incredible. Um, Gene, we know that much of the real work happens at the state level. Hmm. So let's go to the top. What, what, um, can you tell us about pro-environmental governors and who should we be watching and what will they do to better protect the environment? That's great, Anthony. As you know, you've had one of the most uh, pro-environment governors in the country out there mm -hmm. in California with, with Governor Brown. I, he, I think he and Jay Inslee up in Washington State have been the two greenest governors. But Gavin okay. Newsom, who's going to step in there in California, I think is going to step in Governor Brown's shoes and keep doing great stuff because California needs to lead the country, right? But there are mm -hmm. another, there are 10 new governors across the country who campaigned and committed to pushing 100% clean energy. And that's across the country. Uh, and you up, go up in Maine, Janet Mills, the former attorney general, she campaigned on climate change. She made it part of her conversation. She's the new governor there. Jared Polis in Colorado campaigned on 100% renewable energy by 2040. And say, really Jared, and say where Jared is from. Yeah. So Jared's from uh, Boulder, Colorado. He's a new governor. Okay. First openly gay uh, man who's, uh, oh, wow. who's a governor. Fantastic. And a big champion on her stuff. Uh, over there in uh, New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham from the Congress, has a 93% score on our scorecard from the House. She's now the new 
Latina, first Democratic Latina governor in the country, the governor of New Mexico. And she's got a state legislature to work with. So you have all kinds of new governors. Michigan, a woman named Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer campaigned on the Great Lakes and clean water and clean air. Uh, woman governor in, in uh, Michigan, a lot of new governors who campaign on our issues and now they're coming into power to get stuff done. It's a great that story for awesome. the governors. Man, yeah. Gene, Gene, Mustafa, Gene got me fired up here. I see. Because you know hey. what? I had to admit, I was, there were some governor races that I was a little upset by the... Yeah. There's some big disappointments. We should be clear. Yeah. Absolutely. There yeah. were you know, a couple of our best friends, Andrew Gillum, hell of a race, yeah. came up just short. Stacey Abrams, Hell of a race came yeah. up just yeah, just that short. Beto O'Rourke in Texas, great. So those are three of the best mm. candidates. They're in tough mm-hmm. states. Yep. But the fact that they came this close shows what great candidates they all were. And they're all going to be back. They're not going away. So we didn't win everything. So there's some great uh, champions that didn't quite get there. But they will get there right. in the future, I'm confident. Man that's, I mean, that's such an important thing to know. And, so, and I think most people know that the state legislators, Mustafa, mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of power in deciding resources and actions that will impact communities on the local level. So, Gene, can you talk about this the pro-environmental gains on the state level, on the state legislators? No, that's really good because, you know, we, we look for states. Look, we try to work with both sides of the aisle. But these days, the leadership in the Republican Party, from Ms. McConnell in the Senate to Paul Ryan in the House, they're just horrible on this stuff. And too many Republicans fall in line. So to make the yeah. most progress on climate, it's got to come from the states. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at states primarily where we call there's a trifecta of a Democratic governor, a Democratic House, and Democratic Senate in that state legislature. And five new states became trifecta states Explain in this election. That. Okay, what, what is that? Trifecta means the Democratic governor a Democratic state house and a Democratic state Senate. There are now 14 states around the country that are all blue in that sense. Democratic governor, Democratic state Senate, Democratic state house. Two years ago, there were only seven. So twice as many kind of all blue state. And that's where you're going to make the most progress. If you have visionary leaders and in those places, mostly we do. So Colorado, like I said, Jared Polis, big champion, uh, new governor. But the state Senate was controlled by Republicans who were blocking action on climate change. That state Senate has now become a blue state Senate led by a real climate champion. And they're going to make progress there. Michelle Lujan Grisham in New Mexico, one of our new champs as well. She's got a Democratic state Senate, a Democratic state leg- state house, more pro climate champions than she had before. They're going to make progress there. Same thing in Maine, all blue state now. Democratic governor, new governor, Janet Mills. Both houses, Democratic, with champions that want to make progress. They were blocked before by either a governor or one of the state houses, and now they're going to be on offense uh, and really be powerful to move forward. Because progress on climate change in the short term, it's going to come from the states. We know that. That's where the action is. And, Tanique, you've seen that in California, as you know. Mm -hmm. More and more states can pick up that mantle and make progress in the short term in the states. And then we've got to get back to Congress in a couple more years. So I I, want to get to – I know – the, the dirty dozen. Yeah. I want to get to this. Oh yeah, we love the dirty dozen. I want, I want, I want to get but before I get to, I actually want a question because we know that to solve climate change, this won't be just a democratic component. It has. To, it won't be Republican. It has to be about humanity. We know we, right. this, this in this process. So there has to be. And I and listen. I, I'm not. You know. I I actually. You know. People, folks. I, I love Ben. Um, and, but I, I know that there's been something that Larry Hogan has mm-hmm. done. And so talk about some of the Republican governors. I know there's been some, in, some, some gains in that as well. 
No, that's right. Look, and I've been doing this for 40 years. It used to be bipartisan support across the board in the Congress, in the states to make progress. The vice chair of my board, as you know, Rev, is a guy named Sherry Bowler, a former Republican House member who was a big champion on climate change. He chaired the science committee. He was one of our best friends. Uh, he retired and then it got taken over by crazy deniers in the Congress. But yes, there are some states, uh, where the governors and from, from Maryland and Massachusetts are the two best examples where a governor said, if I'm from Maryland, you can't not know that protecting the Chesapeake Bay is important. So Ben Jealous would have been a great governor, but Hogan's actually done a good enough job that voters said, okay, we'll stick with him. Not perfect by any means, but gets that you have to be green. He, you know, he criticizes Trump. Same thing up, up in Massachusetts as well. So there are a couple of Republican governors who get it. And if they, and they both got reelected overwhelmingly in part because mm. they were smart enough to not be in the Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, Dana Rohrbach or climate denier camp. They said, no, these are real problems. We have to try to solve them. They're not perfect. They could be more aggressive, but they at least get these are real issues and they got to wrestle with them. And so we need to find more Republicans at all levels to get there. Problem is in the Congress, they're bought and sold by the fossil fuel companies and the Koch brothers. So we're not going to start at the federal level. We got to build up from the states to build a better movement from the ground up, frankly. Mm. So, Gene, can you talk a little bit about the Dirty Dozen? I love that name. I grew I up watching Western. <laughs> oh, yeah, we love it. That type of thing. But uh, yeah, so can you just share a little bit about who the Dirty Dozen was, what happened to them. And then let's just transition a little bit into how this election helps us support, uh, you know, the Green New Deal that everybody is talking about. So the Dirty Dozen is a program we've had for over 20 years. And what we do is we pick 12 of the worst candidates, but who are actually in tough races and toss up races. And we actually spend a lot of our money to try to beat them. We've been doing that problem for that, that program for 20 years. We usually win about two thirds of our races, which is really good. About six years ago, because we have this really strong partnership, as the Rev knows, with our state LCVs, we added a second dirty dozen in the states. We picked 12 of the worst folks in the states and added a dirty dozen in the states. This year was so special, and there's so many horrible House members that we were trying to defeat to make it, to change the leadership in the House. We actually, for the first time, said we're going to do a third dirty dozen, a special dirty dozen, just for House <laughs> members. So you go 12 senators. 12 in the States, uh-huh. 12 in the House, and they were so many bad House members, we made it a baker's dozen. So there's actually 37 dirty dozen members in all these levels. Wow. Okay. The most ever. And the best news is 31 of those 37 wow. were beat. Come on 84, now. 84 oh, hey, percent the of them down. That's the Amazing. Three times, three times, three times. <laughs> so it was, it was a great year, and it, it, you don't want to be on LCV's dirty dozen don't, list. Don't. And they uh, – <laughs> Almost all of them went down. It was a great year. And it's a, it's a great. And I ran into a member of Congress uh, just the other day. He said 20 years ago, he got elected because we beat his opponent who was on Durda. So the kind of being on the Dirty Dozen is something you don't want to see because you're going to go down more, much more often than not. So it's a great program in general. And we had our, one of our best years ever and had that special house Dirty Dozen this time. Mm-hmm. Man, I love that. Yeah. And this energy. So there's a huge amount of energy. People here, Rev and myself, talk about power all the time. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of energy behind the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Stop! I need to stop you there. You need to. So, folks tuning right now, listening. Obviously, you know, you're tuning into Think One Percent, the coolest show on climate change. And we need uh, on this show. Sometimes we have a lot of new listeners who are coming into the climate movement, and they hear these things. So, I need you to take that one a little slow mm-hmm. and break down when you say 
because that is a new deal, but the Green New Deal break down for the people what is a Green New Deal. So you want me to break it down or I break it down you, so it's broke? I need you to. I need you to. <laughs> TC, come on now. I need you. To, I need you to. Come on now, break it down, Mustafa. Yeah. So you know, we often talk about moving to this new clean green economy. This is actually a complete paradigm shift. It is actually moving us to 100% clean energy at a fairly rapid pace um, with the things that so far have been uh, identified. But we also know that it has to make sure that there's equity in that process. We're talking about job creation and making sure that we are moving past just the livable wage, but actually making sure that many of the communities who are often forgotten are a part of this new infrastructure that folks are building. Um, you know, there are a number of different components that are a part of the Green New Deal. Okay. Um, and folks should actually go out. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has actually been a strong proponent of this. And there's some action also on the Hill uh, to get a select subcommittee in place uh, to be able to really dive in, to build this out, uh, and then to be able to move forward if, you know, in how we're trying to make this transition. So real quick on that, I need Gene to weigh in on this Green New Deal. But just for folks who are listening, because we have pushed folks to read our brother Van's book, Green Economy. What's the difference between the Green Economy and the Green New Deal? Well, I think this is uh, the Green Economy 2.0 and also is uh, also focusing a bit more on some of the inclusiveness that needs to happen. Got you. Um, now, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't also highlight the fact that many of these things that are being highlighted have been done in uh, vulnerable communities and communities with environmental justice concerns. For those folks who actually like to sort of unpack some of this, go look at some of the green zones that have been out there for a number of years. Look at the work that happened in Spartanburg, South Carolina with the Regenesis Project. There are a number of examples out there with various components of this um, about how folks are reclaiming power, how they're driving the process, uh, and, and how they're helping to make that real change happen. And I'm hoping that the energy that has existed over the last 30 years inside of communities doing this work around climate and environment, there will be a intersection point with the work that uh, folks are now proposing on the Hill. Mm. So, Gene, so from that standpoint, I know this has to impact LCB's work in a major way. What are your thoughts on the Green New Deal and, and how does this election support a Green New Deal? So I love the concept of a Green 2.0 and because yes. this is, this has been a conversation for a while. As you said, Dan Jones writes yep. about this, has written a book about it. Jay Inslee, the governor of, of Washington state wrote a book about the green economy. So at, at a fun, at a most fundamental level, we need to educate folks that actually fixing the climate challenge actually fix the, fixes the economy of the future, fixes the security of the future fixes our health and fixes those communities that are most adversely impacted by the horrors of climate change. Mm. So you got to frame this in a way that kind of, if you do it right, you have these super investments in new technologies, uh, new manufacturing processes, new automobiles, new grid, mass transit, you know, writ large, just all kinds of investments we can make that are going to help solve the climate crisis, but they are going to create the new jobs of the future. They're going to protect our health in ways we haven't, that we really need. They're going to increase our national security protections. There's all kinds of ways this makes sense. Details. There's a lot of great ideas out there. I don't think anyone settled on there's exactly the path, but remember back when uh, president Obama first came in mm -hmm. 2009, they passed this, you know, economic stimulus bill because the economy was in the toilet, frankly. Right. And what it wound up being, and it wasn't really packaged well, frankly, at the time as well as it should be. It was at the time, the single biggest investment 
in clean energy jobs. And Department of Energy, the states got all this new money to help to te- help build the begin to build those new technologies of the future. Invest in wind, invest in solar, invest in geothermal, begin to fix the grid, increase mass transit, a whole host of things. I think, and I think with this green 2.0, there's actually more of an emphasis, Mustafa said, about making sure those affected communities, primarily communities of color, as you all know, uh, that are impacted by climate change, that they're part of the solution and they're revitalizing in a way that make, that makes them, tries to make them whole again. That's a key element of this. I think it needs to be elevated and strengthened. Uh, getting the labor unions to understand why this actually, it's not just a job in the future. It's actually a, a good living wage job as a part of that conversation mm. is also critical. So it's really a visionary way to look at solving the climate crisis in a way that actually helps with a lot of other problems as well. And it's a, it's a win for our client, for our planet. It's a win for our economy. It's a win for our security. It's a win for our health. It's a win for the future. So, and it's a win for justice. So all those pieces done right, wrap all this into an amazing, powerful, powerful package of, of proposals that we, yeah, that's what we need to, that's where we need to go. That's the aspirational place we need to go. Man, I, I love it. I mean, I think that this is where we can fight <laughs> poverty and pollution at the same time. Yeah. And I think this, we can move things forward. So, uh, so Gene got me in here pumped, y'all. He, he got, he, he got, he brought a good with the election. He done got rid of the dirty dozen. He done broke down the Green New Deal. And so, but I want to say that there is no movement without women. Right. And so this is the year of the woman. So this is the decade of the woman. I love it. This is the decade of the woman. I love it. Thanks, Antonique. You got it. You got it. All right. Taking it, Gene, you got you. Uh, can you highlight a couple of the women that are, are climate champions that listeners should be watching? Oh, yeah, but it, it's it's not just a couple. I mean, one okay. that, I think, look, there's a few best stories out of this election. One is, and by the way, we'll back up on the election. Mm-hmm. Off year elections are usually when, uh, you know, people, some people just vote in presidential years and, and take their off years off. Mm-hmm. One of the best reasons why there's so many new members of Congress, so many great new governors, so many new great state it's like young people and people of color showed up yep. in record numbers for an off year. Mm-hmm. That's a critical part of it. And as a result, that new Congress has more women than ever before, more people mm-hmm. of color than ever before, an incredibly wow. diverse Congress in so many ways. And that's true in the state legislatures and in the governors as well. So it's about who shows up. And who people talk to to make sure they showed up. And so specifically, so I think there's so many new women. It's a, it's a great list. Uh, Again, Stacy's not yet there because, you know, I mean, they could have suppressed the vote in Georgia. Let's be honest. Uh-huh. That's what happened there. But she uh-huh. came this close to, even despite that. But you've got so many new g- women governors like Janet Mills in Maine, like Gretchen Whitmer in, in Michigan, like Michelle Lujan Grisham in, in New Mexico, just to take three mm-hmm. on the governor side. In the Congress, you've got, again, a hundred new women coming in and incredibly diverse in all kinds of ways. You have the first, you know, first two native American women, mm-hmm. one of them, Deb mm-hmm. Holland, they spent time with last week from New Mexico. You have the Muslim first two Muslim American women. Uh, one's from one's uh, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You have a diverse set of folks. Um, and they, and again, they're clamoring to work on this. Alexandria uh, came in a little earlier yeah. or she got her, he won her primacy. She was basically going to be there. Yeah. You know, an incredibly powerful voice talking about these issues all the time. So there's just a, it's just a long list. And, and that's a great thing. Governor out that in, is a great thing. Uh, out in Oregon, Kate Brown, who was the governor but got reelected in a big fight. She's one of those that now has a trifecta state where she can actually have a 
did some progress. She wants to put a price on carbon out there. She's really a champion on this stuff. So this oh, wow. at local level, state level, federal level in the house, more women than ever before. And they're leaning into our issues because they truly get it. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great story out there. And, uh, you know, out in California, uh, Katie Hill, Katie Porter, a couple of examples there, just a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And again, they ran on our issues and they're coming to Congress and wanting, wanting to get it, be a part of the action. It's great. Awesome. So, Gene, I, I, first of all, we appreciate you being on the show. And I have a, I have a question though. And I, and I think it's important. So I have, Two questions, and anybody else can chime in, but I have two questions. One question is, um, I want you to think about it, so you can, which, <laughs> what is your favorite song or artist? And and so I want you to process that and kind of, you know, let that sink in. And then, and then, um, and if you, and, and, and so just so you, you don't have, Anthony is all of our favorite artists. You don't got to say anything. <laughs> right. So I tell you here comes, I, am I supposed to say, here comes the sun? Is that the answer? Yeah. yeah no, no. So, I love it, Anthony. So, so I said that one. So thank you, G. So we, so we want you to process that, that, that question. But, and I also want to think this, this aspect, you know, this show, think 100%, as you have seen, we have three people of color and, and, and Antonique helps us and Mustafa keeps us, keeps us young. I, I, I'm, I'm the old geezer here on, on the show. Um, and you're so young, Rev. That's okay. That's okay. good. That's okay. And cause this is the coolest show on climate change, but this is the that's thing. Right. The gene, this is, this is the question. I, I'm everything you said today and for all of our listeners who are listening, I am excited about and congratulations on what LCV did. Um, in this midterm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about what happened with the dirty dozen. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about what is happening out there with these new members and old members. But the thing is this gene, and this is, and you and I are friends. So this is a, we can have like, we're sitting around, you know, eating our fish and chips, uh, <laughs> conversation, which we That's do. At the Dubliner, right? That's right. Which we do on occasion. <laughs> this is the thing. <laughs> Is our movement also diverse enough to to match the diversity that's actually coming in the legislative branch? Hmm. And for you, you're one of you you run one of the big green organizations. And so if you can talk to your peers in essence, what can we do at this critical moment to make our movement more diverse? And does things like think one percent the crucial climate change helped that process. Well, the second part is obvious and easy. Of course, a program like this, we need more programs like this and having more of these conversations absolutely helps. And if you could kind of, you know, times 10 do more things like this, that's wonderful and reach as many audiences as possible. Look, and I think there's your, and I'll see the challenge, the question on the challenge of the traditional uh, environmental community is it as, does it look like America? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it needs to. I would say there's a, I've been doing this for like 40 years. There's been change, but it's in incremental small steps for the most part. What I will observe, I'd say over the half dozen years, last half dozen years or so, I think there's been more intentionality to that, which you need. You can't just say some nice words and then go off and do whatever you have to say. You have to invest. You put your, you know, not just uh, talk to talk, but walk to walk and put resources into that. 
one thing is that, and, and so we've had a serious commitment to this, um, not as long as we should have, honestly. It's getting better, but it needs a lot of work. Um, you know, one of the one of the best stories from this election is you look at the Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, that part of the country. We and other groups made a significant big Latino population, which is underrepresented in voting, underrepresented in organizations, but powerful and needs organizing. We hired about 30 Latino organizers in the last three years to work in those four states, both registering people, turning out people with our C3 part of our organization, doing political work with our C4, and the Southwest is being transformed. And you can't do that by parachuting people in and then leaving. You have to build from the ground up. So this, I think our movement needs a lot of work and it's forever work as, as we like to say in, in a, in a serious way. Uh, I, again, it's gotten better, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Our movement needs to look like America. Mm -hmm. The Congress looks more like America. Mm -hmm. It needs work too. The environmental community looks more like America, but all, it also needs a lot more work. And I'm, and that's, I'm proud to have you, be part of our, our board and our conversation, not just in the, on this show tonight, which is great, but a, a, a continuing conversation about how we do this better uh, with myself, with other colleagues. I think there's a there's a better commitment than ever before, but there's so much more we need to do. And, and these kinds of programs actually help have that conversation elevated even more. So thanks for doing that, for sure. No, thank you. And with that, your favorite song and artist. Before we, as we, as we let you give us, give us, <laughs> give us, give us your what no, gets you going, Gene. So for folks knowing, so this is old Buddy Holly song called "Not Fade Away." Okay, it's an old song. Uh, it's sung by, uh, play, played in a in a cover by uh, one of my favorite artists, a guy named Jerry Garcia. If you ever heard him, yeah. played with this old band called the Grateful Dead. But my most current favorite artist is a guy named LeBron James. Okay. Because Rev and I, you don't know this, Rev and I actually played basketball a few times together. Yeah. There's an art, I did not know that. There's okay. an art to basketball. Wow. There's an art to basketball, and LeBron is an artist who's the best at his trade. I love watching him, and I love, and you yeah. should see Rev on his jump shot. I put the jump part of that shot in close, <laughs> but uh, he and I can uh, stand at that three-point line and throw a lot of bricks, and it, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, 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 on that note, everyone, that was Gene. And Gene leads on that note. Gene, we love you, man. Yes. Thank you, brother. Love you, Gene. Thank you. Great to hear from you, Anthony. Keep up the great work yes, out there. Yes, thank you. You too. Okay. That was Gene Karpinski, president from the legal Congress of Voters. Joining Dibs at me, Megan, making I haven't seen Mustafa spot that large in a long time. Anthony laughing at, at my bricks. That's because we used to play ball back in the day I know. together. Well, listen, the, the shot is still good. It just, it just goes shorter now. It doesn't it go as far as it, as it used to. Mustafa, on that note, listen, we, we're going to transition. Y'all laughing at me on my jump shot. So can you share a little bit about Diane Cotter, our next guest? Yes, yes. We are so extremely blessed to have Diane Cotter, who is joining us on the show tonight. Uh, Diane is a wife. She's also a chemical safety advocate who is fighting to make sure that first responders, let me say that again, to make sure that first responders are better protected and to bring national attention to the deadly effects of PFOA and PFOS. Many of you have heard a little bit about this in the news. Um, so we should definitely pay attention to what Diane is going to share with us because the impacts uh, from these chemicals um, are, you know, devastating our first responders, but they're also uh, in our water systems and really putting many of our lives in jeopardy. So, Diane, are you with us? 
Yes, sir, I am. Thank you, Mustafa. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for having uh, the time and sharing the time to join us. And Rev, I'm going to turn it over to you. Oh, Diane, it's such an honor to have you on Hip Hop Caucus, Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Can you please share a little bit about what P4 and PFAS is and what are the dangers? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Rev. It's absolutely a pleasure to be with you and an honor to be with you folks. So um, in the fire service, it's used in what they call AFFF, that's the film uh, foaming um, um, solution that puts out a fire, a chemical fire. And it is used in specific uh, fires, would use, um, use that type of foam. It's not used in every type of fire. So that's where you would get the PFOS like in SAM, that's where you would get the uh, majority of that chemical would come from the AFFF. That's why you see it in all of the military bases um, that it's leaching out into the water tables, et cetera. And the, the PFAS, where my husband and I came in on this, was actually in our turnout gear. That's the, the, what you see the firefighters wearing. Um, with the yellow reflective tape on it. And that is very technical equipment that is, you know, has so much background to it as far as standards set in by the National Fire Protection Agency. That the last thing that you might expect that there would be chemicals that would be reproductive um, toxins that are actually used in the manufacturing process of the gear. And that's where we came into the picture because the P the PFAS in the gear is a surfactant. It's a surfactant rather. It's used to make the gear waterproof. Um, as you can understand they need to have waterproof gear so that it doesn't weigh them down when they're fighting fires. And uh, it's it's used also for stain repellent. Um, you have it in all of your um, outdoor clothing, in your tents and umbrellas. But what we found is that uh, the gear that we tested via an independent testing had staggering amounts of these chemicals in it. Mm. And that's the part that is just so surprising to the fire service. So when this first happened, we um, we found out because my husband is a retired firefighter for the city of Worcester in Massachusetts, and he served on the rescue squad there for over 25 years and had to retire due to his prostate cancer diagnosis, and we are so grateful to say that he is cancer-free today. Oh, thank God. Praise God, yeah. So, uh, but what happened in the interim of that is we began to look at why would such a healthy guy have um, prostate cancer? It's not in his family. And he was, you know, he was 54 when he was diagnosed. Just right on the young side of it. He had no symptoms um, at all but he was going for a surgery that required some blood work, and his blood work showed slightly elevated PSA. And come to find out, he was um, right on the aggressive 
end up having um, a diagnosis that that would have would have led to a much um, more dramatic outcome, I would think. But at at any event, we started doing some research, and I started reaching out to literally. Uh, I think we lost count at eighteen hundred um, individuals and organizations. And we wanted to look into the gear itself, and um, what we found out was that the, the gear is um, impregnated with these with these chemicals. We then went to the chemical corporations, and uh, we asked them for the for the spec sheet on these items, and. Uh, you know, by this time, many firefighters were catching on to what we were doing because there were some trade magazine articles that came out. One in particular was called um, The Real Cancer in Your Gear, and that was written by myself and the, um, with the help of the editor from uh, Station Pride magazine. And it was shocking. It literally shocked the fire service. But what we ended up doing was with our grassroots efforts as we called out for new never worn turnout gear. And mm. we got we did get a great response and we got new never worn gear. And then we have a, a you know our, our outreach speaks to about fifteen uh, scientists and researchers and we asked would anybody help us in testing this new never worn gear because we couldn't get any answers from the corporations that um that literally preach firefighter cancer prevention to us in every single aspect of the fire service. They're so deeply immersed in the fire service and all of our research and all of our firefighter cancer outreach and our firefighter cancer symposiums and the National Fire Protection Association. They sit on all the boards, um, and yet we couldn't get this information from them. So by the grace of God, we got a response from this great team of researchers, about 15 of them, and one was Professor of Physics, Graham Paisley, who was at Notre Dame University, and didn't he have just the right equipment to test the the fabric for us? He tested it, and he sent us the results, and, uh, you know, my husband and I are not uh, educated people, and he spelled it out so perfectly for us. He's mm. very patient with us, all of our researchers. Are. And he said the, the amount of this um, uh, PFOA and the other long-chain chemicals that they found in the turnout year were um, way over the pot per billion recommended level that they have in Europe, and which, of course, we have no recommended levels for them here in textiles, let alone uh, in water tables. But um, we we found out that our gear, as tested by Professor Peasley, at just the fraction of the potential that is in the gear was uh, 14,000 times the newly recommended MRL for PF. OA that came out in June. Mm. So uh, there again is just stunning information to the fire service because these manufacturers literally stand shoulder to shoulder with us 
at all of our firefighter cancer teaching uh, bodies. Uh, they've never said a word. They deny it vehemently. And now we have taken on the uh, ability to test more gear. So we set uh, out to um, have testing of uh, uh, a span of gear that runs about 15 years. And it's new, never worn gear. And that comes from um, a fire company in Alameda County, Cal California. And we've got a, a PPE specialist out there. Again, this is all done grassroots by a Facebook page. <laughs> and we, <laughs> right? And we're, we are testing that with um, uh, decommissioned gear from the Boston area. Um, fire service, fire health and safety officer from the Salem, Massachusetts Fire Department who's gathered the, the decommissioned here in the hope that Professor Peasley has is that he wants to see what comes off in the wash, uh, what actually is in the gear if we can't find out by the manufacturers that sell it to us at, you know, $2,000 a set for, a, a, you know, for the, the bunker gear. Um, then we have to have a way to protect ourselves. And unfortunately, unlike any other textile, our turnout gear does not have the, uh, the, the warning labels like you would see for a Prop 65. Uh, Cal California, where you are, in sneak, is you have Prop 65 labels if you went to buy mm -hmm. it. You saw it. You see it. It's on everything almost out here. <laughs> right. So we... So our manufacturers, get this, lobbied for and won the right to not put warning labels in our turnout gear. Wow. That's specific uh. to turnout gear. Now, there's so many layers to this onion, it's ridiculous. So some of those um, manufacturers on that organization, it's a trade organization, and, of course, we're going to come right out and say, of course, we realize that, you know, many of them had no idea about this this particular carcinogen. But we do know that there are those that are very well aware of it. And, in fact, back in 2004, um, the DuPont workers, the United Steel Workers mm -hmm. Union, worked in the DuPont plant where they were um, making, you know, um, fabric protectors and, um, I guess, carpet, carpet fabrics and whatnot. And those workers that were in that, the plants, they actually sent a letter to 4,000 um, manufacturers telling them that they were extremely concerned of the, the PFOA issues that they saw firsthand working in those in those plants, I think, in West Virginia. And uh, one of those was, was, of course, DuPont, who makes our gear, who makes our Kevlar and Nomex for our gear. And the other was Gore, as in Gore-Tex. And they were told by the United Steelworkers Union that they had a duty to warn the end user of these potential carcinogens. And they never did. Wow! So you have to you have to picture this that they stand with us and preach to us that our cancers 
are caused by products of combustion. Mm -hmm. So a product of combustion is your toxic smoke. Mm -hmm. So what's infuriating to to me, to my husband, and to, you know, maybe 1.4 million firefighters, is if you know that this may be a potential problem and you're sitting on our uh, organizations that, that discuss and make standards from everything from the balance of a helmet to the width of reflecting tape, but you're zipping your mouth because you don't want to hurt your bottom line when it comes to your, um, your shareholder value because of the PFOA issues that DuPont was having, um, you know, in way back, even in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s, the DuPont workers, or 70s, I should say, the DuPont workers were told not to bring home their, uh, their clothing that they wore in the shop if they worked in this particular area that had PFOA in it. Yeah. So so to, to someone like us who, 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 who understands by way of what we've been told as to how much is in our gear, it's just it's incomprehensible to, to us that they would stand shoulder to shoulder and, and not only um, deny it, but to minimize it and saying if it was in there, it would be in there in trace amounts. Mm-hmm. So we now get the meaning of what trace amount means to, you know, DuPont and Gore and others. Hey, Diane, this is Mustafa. Let me let's uh, transition a little bit because we're running a little short on time. And, and, you know, we through the story that you shared with us, we know that manufacturers have not necessarily been doing the right thing. And, you know, that is a reoccurring theme uh, in relationship to exposures to toxins and pollution. Uh You know, we see this in so many places, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit about the federal government because the federal government has some responsibility. Um, Can you share a little bit about Robert Billet's uh, letter, um, the September 27th? Yes. He, he is, he is a saving grace. So in 2017, he sent a letter to the EPA, the CDC, ATSPR and U S attorney general, Jeff, Sessions on behalf of um, the, uh, let's see, it was Fire Chief Jeff Herms, as, uh, who was also a prostate cancer survivor, and C8 Science Panel member Paul Brooks. And he's, what he said was he wanted testing and studies for all first responders. It's not just uh, your structural firefighters, it's your wildland firefighters. Mm-hmm. It's your uh, military firefighters and it's your volunteers. We all wear that turnout gear and we're all exposed to that same foam. And he wanted testing and studies and that did not happen. He said if he doesn't, if he didn't get it, he would potentially sue these government organizations and others. So what happened was there was funds that went, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure which organization or branch of the, uh, of the House had it, but the funds went to the military for PFAS testing and studies, and they decided to send the, the, the monies to a, um, uh, a military organization. And Senator Shaheen and Maggie Hassan up in New Hampshire, where, where we now reside, they were instrumental in getting the funding for PZF Force Base, 
And we actually thought, yay, it's right here, it's right next door to us, and we can kind of watch and see how things go. Well, come this September, come to find out, there was the fire service was omitted by the CDC from the PFAS study. And you'll never guess why. Mm. Why is that? Because we're occupationally exposed. Mm. So, so we cannot get studied. We are holding bake sales and, and car washes to fund our own independent studies. Wow. And the, yeah, and so, so Attorney Ballot, he sent another letter challenging them, the CDC, as to why you would omit such an exposed community. Now, mind you, we know this is going on, but you still see the firefighters out there every day fighting fires, putting on that same gear, which we have no idea um, as we don it what is in the chemical coatings. And it's not just PFAS. We don't know what any of the chemical coatings are. So, um, Mustafa, you wanted to know more about what the federal government's role is. They're an epic disaster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to state that I've stated this before, that both from a Democratic and Republican side, um, the CDC and the EPA has been an epic disaster because these occupational health studies have been going on since 1977. Yeah. And here we are still asking for comments on PFAS issues. Well, what yeah, well, Diane, oh. Diane, we want to, we just want to thank you so much, you and your husband, for being those unsung heroes That's that right. have been standing up and who have been fighting. And we want to, we want to make sure that we continue this story. So we're going to make sure that we have you and some others who are back on the show. And, right. um, Diane, can you just share with folks real quickly how they can stay in touch with you and how they can get yeah. involved in this movement? Thank you again. So we have a petition to um, 50 senators and Congress asking for firefighters to get on to the CDC study and with comes with many updates. You'll find it on our uh, Facebook page. Facebook page and Twitter, both the same name, Your Turnout Gear and PSOA. All right. Well, thank you, Diane Carter. Thank you so much. Thank Jill. you, Diane. Yes, we'll stay in thank touch. Thank you. Thank you all so very, very much for the opportunity. God bless. God bless. God bless. God bless. Man, thank you for all of our amazing guests for being on the show. And thank all of you for listening. And now let's close the show on a powerful note with our incredible Grammy nominated co-host, <laughs> Anthony Smith. Thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever podcasts are available so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us. And if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. The big 100. The big 100.